Please remain standing as you're able for our sermon scripture reading. This is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30, and that's on page 877 of the Pew Bible. Luke 18, 15 through 30. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You may be seated. Let's let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that what is impossible for us which is to change a heart, to come back to life from the dead, to know you and love you truly. What is impossible for us is possible for you. That's our hope this morning. That's why we keep coming back. Um, It is not our hope in our own self and our own abilities, our trust in our own strength, but it's trust in the God who is able to do all that we are unable and delights to do it. So may you open our eyes and our ears This morning, may you peel back the layers of our hearts that we might be exposed before your word. We might be more like your son, Jesus. Pray this in your holy name. Amen. Take a drink real quick. (laughs) I usually try to be more subtle with that. Anyways, when you're uh, buying a house, assuming that you're not independently wealthy and can't pay in cash, you have to get a mortgage. And the process is you go to a bank and they give you a loan, and that enables you to then actually buy a house before you're 60. Now, when Mark and I bought a house a year ago, the the way that process works is you're trying to get the best interest rate. So if you're getting your standard 30-year mortgage, you know, a fraction of a percentage doesn't make a huge deal in one year, but over 30 years, that's a significant amount of money. So you're going to the bank trying to make the best case that you are the best financial bet possible so you can get the lowest interest rate possible. So you're listing everything that you're bringing to the table, all your assets, 
all the assets that might be. You're wondering if you sold possessions, would that add to your assets? You're wondering if Markle sold her hair, how much would that be worth? Let's put that down. Anything and everything you can think of. And the hope is that that somehow gives you a better interest rate. Now, one thing that you'll never hear a bank say, though, is we don't, we don't care about your assets. We don't care what you're bringing to the table. The only thing that matters to us is that you trust us. You're not going to hear a bank say that. And if you did, probably a red flag. When we're dealing with commercial relationships, there is a healthy suspicion, right? Um, because it's a transactional relationship. That means it's a relationship that's based on a contract that is legally binding. It's not based on friendship. It's based on you both agreeing to some contract that, again, if you're going to uphold your side, I'm going to uphold my side. If we don't, there are legal uh, avenues you can pursue. And as a society becomes more and more complex, more and more of our relationships are, in fact, transactional relationships. When you woke up, you know, if you just think of the, of the various people you interact with on a given day, maybe you stopped to get coffee on the way to church this morning. That was a transactional relationship with the barista. They may know your name. They may know what you like. But at the end of the day, it's a transactional relationship. You are buying coffee from them. When you deal with the bank on the phone or when you get health insurance, that's a transactional relationship. When you go into work on Monday and you interact with your, with your boss, that's a transactional relationship. When it's no longer a village of 100 people, but we're primarily interacting with strangers all day, all week, they have to be transactional. That's the only way you can trust strangers. But here's the thing, and I have a point to this, and I'm getting somewhere with this. The point is that because so many of our relationships in a complex country like America are transactional, the temptation is we begin to subtly, even unconsciously, viewing our relationship with God in the same way as if it's transactional. And so we think, well, God, if, if I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm to make the best spiritual case to God. I'm going to show him my good works. I'm going to show him all that I've done for him, my obedience, my sacrifice, and hope that, you know, this gives me a better spiritual interest rate, that God loves me more, shows me his favor. And we probably don't ever say that baldly, but again, it's so subtle, and because so many of our relationships are transactional, it's easy to begin to view our relationship with God as transactional. But what's surprising we see in this text here, and what we're reminded of again and again and again in the New Testament, and we're reminded because we, we forget is that when, when, when Jesus was coming to bring the kingdom of God and he was inviting people into that kingdom, he didn't ask for what people's f- financial assets were. He did not ask what their talents were or what their good deeds were. Rather, what he asked for most of all is that they would trust and rely on him as opposed to trusting and relying on themselves. So we are back in the Gospel of Luke. We took a hiatus for Advent and if you remember, we're in this section of discipleship. It goes for a number of chapters. It's Jesus on his final approach to Jerusalem. He's taking time aside with his disciples to teach them, to prepare them for his departure. And even more kind of zoomed in in chapter 18 where we are on in chapter 19, we're getting examples of what God wants, the attitudes that God wants in his followers and his people. So if you remember from the first story in chapter 18, the persistent widow who keeps going to the unrighteous judge, she won't give up. And it's the attitude of prayer God wants in his people. Or after that, we get the, uh, right, the tax collector and the Pharisee. We find that what God wants in his people is, is a sense of broken humility. God, I am mercy. Have, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then here today, we see what God wants from us 
is the trust of a child. And so first we're introduced to what God wants, is trust of a child, but then it's contrasted to the attitude of a rich ruler, to a man who would have everything that this world wants, and ironically enough, he's missing one of the things that matters most. So the outline for us this morning is first the posture of faith, second it's the posture of a rich young ruler, and lastly it's the promises of faith. So first, the posture of faith. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 17. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The image here is, is parents are bringing their kids. This is infants. It might have been infants. It was probably more like toddlers, early elementary. Uh, bring their kids to be blessed by Jesus. This would have been a common practice. Rabbis would bless children. A blessing is just invoking God's favor. You know, we think in the Old Testament, right, the patriarchs would bless their kids. And so here are parents, and they're bringing their young kids to Jesus. So he might bless them. He might invoke God's favor. Here the, the great teacher, Jesus himself, but of course, his disciples are interfering and they're trying to stop Jesus. We don't, or sorry, trying to stop the kids. We don't, we don't know why he doesn't say. Probably they're thinking, Jesus is an important man. He's like healing people and raising the dead. Come on, people. He hasn't had time for your little, your little snotty-nosed kids. And Jesus steps in and corrects them. And in, in, in the middle of this story, it provides fodder for two different teachings that Jesus gives. First, that Jesus values all people because everyone's made in the image of God, even children, even those that society doesn't view as that important. But that's not the main point, though, although that is something that Jesus is teaching here. But actually, the main point is far more substantive than just that Jesus likes the little children, although every children's minister ever loves this passage. That's not the main point. The main point is actually Jesus is pointing to kids to teach us something fundamental about those who would enter the kingdom of God. And we see that, and look again in verse 16. He says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He's saying, to people like this, there's something exemplary or representative about children that is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. Well, what exactly Jesus is talking about, he doesn't say. Maybe he's referring to the vulnerability of kids, the weakness of kids, if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we will never enter on our own power. And there's biblical precedent for that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are hunger, hungry and thirsty. And there's biblical precedent for that. But typically when Jesus talks about children, he's talking about the trust that a child has for their parent, the faith of a child. And that's the point of Jesus is saying is, to such, to those who have faith, trust, in the way that a child will trust their own parents, to those belonging the kingdom of God, to those who trust God in such a way. Because at the end of the day, children trust parents implicitly, right? And, okay, up to a certain age, and then they get to be 12, and then they know everything for about 10 years, and then they realize when they're like in their early 20s, oh, my parents were not that bad. Um, but anyways, but until they hit that kind of prepubescent stage, they're not fact-checking their parents. No four-year-olds like pulling out their phone, fact-check, no mom, that's wrong. They just, they just, 
Exceptions aside, most five-year-olds just implicitly trust their parents. About two years ago, uh, when Caleb was three, he was asking a lot of questions about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. And so I was going through the gospel with him that all of us are born with sin, with badness, and Jesus came to take away our badness, and he did it by dying on a cross. So that if we, if we, if we trust in Jesus, we can be forgiven and have life with him now and, and then also go to heaven when we die. Because every person who has not trusted in Jesus, if they die, they'll go to hell. When I described hell to him, he's, we're at the breakfast table, he's eating breakfast, when I tell him that everyone who hasn't trusted in Jesus will go to hell, he starts crying, like just tears down his face. And at the end of the day, that's a, actually a pretty profound response because if we take seriously what the Bible teaches about judgment and how off it'll be, there's no other response that's right other than crying. We're just not used to it because one, we're either numb to it, or two, we have a little bit of skepticism, like really, is that really what's gonna happen? But here's my little three-year-old child he just accepts what I said. It was like I said, you know, we're going to go to the playground tomorrow. Like he just, of course, that's what's going to happen. That's the trust of a child. And it's not just trusting us in what we say is true, right? They also trust us to provide for them. No five-year-old that I know of has an IRA or is worried about, well, what if the stock market goes down and will we provide, who's going to provide for us next, you know? No, they just trust, like their parents are going to handle that. Which is why sometimes, again, when you get to be an adult and you look back on your life and there were like seasons in your childhood that were wonderful and you realize that your parents were like having the hardest time of their life, and you're like, well, as a six-year-old, I thought it was pretty great. Didn't realize it was so hard for you guys. And it's because as a child, you're shielded from that because you're, you're trusting your parents. Even if there's financial difficulties and relationship difficulties, like your parents are shielding you to some extent. And that's the kind of posture that God wants in those who approach him. More than anything, more than all the things we think matter, charisma, ability, money, resources, whatever, intelligence, God wants us to trust him like a child, like a five-year-old child will trust their parents. For to such belong the kingdom of God. And I tell you what, at least my experience as a father of three, my kids don't trust me because of anything that they have done. Caleb doesn't clear the table and think, ah, now my dad's going to take care of me. He trusts me because he knows me. I'm not a perfect dad, obviously, but he knows that I love him and I'm going to care for him. He knows my character, and that's why he trusts me. And that's what God wants from us, that we would trust him, not based on, 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 our, on our conduct or what we've done, but because we have come to know the character of God. And we've come to know him as one who is trustworthy. So this is the first point. This is the posture of faith. This is what God wants of us, to trust him as a child would trust their parent. And now we get to this contrast, though, which is the posture of, a, of the rich young ruler, which is our second point. In verse 18 here, we're setting the scene. Follow along. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it tells us this is a ruler, Later on, we find out he's a very wealthy ruler, a fabulously wealthy ruler, as some would say. And in, and in Mark's account, it tells us he's also young. And so he wouldn't have been a religious ruler. You had to be older to be a rabbi or to be uh, you know, a leader of a synagogue. He would have been some kind of civic leader, like a mayor type deal, a prominent young man with a large fortune he'd inherited. And he comes to Jesus and he asks what's, you know, probably the most, not probably, what is the most important question we can ask? how do you have eternal life, right? Because here's a man who's 
had a good life. We might say he was born with a silver spoon, yet he knows even a good life will end. Even the best life lived, the, the most happy, joyful, prosperous, comfortable life will one day end in death. Okay, so how do you have life that won't end? And he comes to Jesus and he asks that. But even in the way he asks this question, though, we're getting a clue that he doesn't really understand his own question, right? Because what does he say? He doesn't say, how can I have eternal life? He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? Already we see where the trust of this young ruler is. It's in his own actions. Already we see a contrast to the faith of a child who again doesn't trust their parent because of their own track record, but trusts them because they know the character of their parents. This rich young ruler from the beginning says, what must I do? And in response to this question, Jesus gives three responses that teaches us about trust, teaches us about what Jesus wants, it teaches us about money, and all sorts of things. But here's a first response, verses 19 to 21. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Right away, Jesus is kind of indicating he's, he's trying to shake this man up. Right? The man says, oh, good teacher. And Jesus says, why call me good? Don't, don't blow smoke up my shirt or however that saying goes. Maybe an inappropriate saying for church. Um, it's like, don't, don't try to um, flatter me. The only person good is God. And there's obviously irony in there because Jesus is God. But from the beginning, Jesus is trying to shake this man up a little bit. And then he goes to the Ten Commandments. Now we have to ask, okay, if this man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why wouldn't Jesus immediately go to the fact that no one can inherit eternal life by their actions? Why does he go to the Ten Commandments? This could seem like Jesus is laying down a legalistic law, like, oh, well, if you obey the Ten Commandments. And so he lists a few of the commandments. And the reason is that the, the Old Testament law, there was a purpose to it. It was never meant to be a how to earn our favor with God, how to inherit the kingdom of God. That was never the purpose. It was never sent up as a contract, like if you do this, you will have life forever. There were parts of it that functioned that way, but the overall purpose of the Old Testament law was actually to prepare us to recognize that we desperately need salvation that can only come by grace so the purpose of the law was actually to teach us how, how deep our sin goes. Because only when we recognize how deep the sin goes within us, then we will stop trying to earn our salvation and recognize my only hope is the salvation that comes by grace through faith. That was the purpose of the law. And so the Apostle Paul actually wrote in Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have kept thinking, I'm okay, you're Okay. But anyone who actually would study the law in not a superficial way would see, oh my word, I'm a sinner. God have mercy. That was, you know, it's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, if you look at another person who is not your spouse with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. The law is much, much deeper and more profound than just a superficial reading of it. 
It's supposed to drive us, honestly, it's supposed to drive us to a sense of despair. Because until we despair of ourselves, we're never going to be willing to accept salvation that's only by grace and the deep humbling that has to come with that. But the rich young ruler responds with confidence. Well, yeah, I've done this, all of it, all Ten Commandments. It's my youth. But what's interesting, though, is that although this young man seems very confident, if he was really that confident, why is he coming to Jesus, right? Like, if he's confident that he's obeyed the whole law since his youth, well, then what's he worried for? Why is he coming for more assurance? And at the end of the day, any type of uh, salvation or, or favor with God that, that's based on our own actions, it's gonna be weak. You know, it, it, it's gonna have a, 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 a poor structural foundation. And this is what Jesus exposes with his next response. Look at verses 22 to 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there's one thing that you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is a notoriously difficult passage to understand because Jesus makes such an exorbitant demand on this man. And there's all kinds of questions like, is this normative, right? Like to be a Christian, does that mean we all have to take on voluntary poverty, sell everything we have? Or, or if you're rich, this is what you have to do to be a Christian. And the question is, what do you mean to be rich? Like what income level do you become rich? There's all kinds of questions like how do we handle this? So I want to make a, first just a, a, a kind of a interpretational um, observation, which is that the, when we get to Scripture texts that are just difficult to understand, the best thing to do is let Scripture interpret itself. And so we see in, 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 in chapter 19, just a few verses later, there's a story of Zacchaeus, who was also fabulously wealthy. And while Zacchaeus is extraordinarily generous, he does not give away all his money. And yet Jesus says of Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this household. Zacchaeus was probably still wealthy even after his great generosity. Or we can just think of Abraham, right, who at, for his time period would have been fabulously wealthy. And yet the Bible calls him righteous before God. So clearly this is not a normative command for every Christian that you cannot be Christian and have wealth or that you have to take vows of voluntary poverty to follow Jesus. But then we have to ask, okay, so then why does Jesus give this specific command to this specific man? What's the purpose of it? And we see the reason, the key for what's going on here is in the ruler's response. Again, in verse 23, but when he, the young ruler, when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely wealthy. This ruler was probably expecting Jesus to tell him what to do. Maybe give him a plan of study, go memorize these passages. Maybe he was thinking that Jesus would tell him to like do these spiritual disciplines or fast more or go on this pilgrimage or a missions trip. And, and, and I'm guessing because he came to Jesus asking what to do, he was, he was prepared to do this. Even if it meant going on a year missions trip, he's like, I'm gonna do it. Because he feels the urgency of how do I have favor with God? How do, I, how, am I, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? But the one thing he wasn't prepared to do was to trust God with his money. In fact, he wasn't even willing to discuss it. Isn't it interesting when Jesus says, sell everything you have, the man doesn't try to discuss it with Jesus. Like, what do you mean? Why? He just says, no. I'm, I'm not even willing to discuss giving you my 
financial resources, trusting you with what matters most to me. This is the contrast that we see. Again, children, you know, the faith of a child, children give things to their kids for safekeeping, right? So after Christmas, if you have more than one kid, they will fight over a toy, um, and eventually you have to step in as a parent and say, you know what, I'm going to hold on to this for now, and we'll get it back later. And that ends it. They don't, they don't, they don't worry. They're like, okay, daddy has it. He's going to keep it safe for now, right? Or if you're on a walk and your child finds a really beautiful leaf, and say, daddy, can you hold this for me? The kids trust you with their stuff, even though they know there's a chance that you as a parent might take something away from them forever. Right? Like, no, you cannot play with a butcher's knife, ever. There are times when a parent has to step in and take things, but a child trusts what they have to their parent because they trust I'm not going to go into my kid's room and just arbitrarily say, you know what, you're having too much fun. Give me that toy. I don't want you to have that for no good reason. I'm just being petty. They, they trust me because I'm their parent. This rich young ruler is unable to trust God with his money. Jesus makes this extraordinary demand to reveal where this ruler's trust is. That's the point of it. Again, it's not that every Christian has to sell everything they have, but in this specific instance, this ruler was trusting in his own money and his own resources and his own ability, and Jesus exposes that. And, and we gotta be careful how we read this. Jesus isn't like, gotcha! And in the account in Mark, includes this little phrase where it says, Jesus heard this, and he loved him, and he said, one thing you still lack. It was Jesus' mercy that leads him to expose this man's lack of trust because he knows anything, even fabulous wealth, anything that keeps us from relying fully upon God is going to be a splintered reed that will pierce us. It'll break in our moment of greatest need and it'll pierce us. It's Jesus' demand. Jesus' demand was his mercy in revealing this man's self-reliance. And then we get Jesus' third response, verses 24 to 27. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus' demand of this man was, was, was a specific demand for him. It was not a universally applicable demand. But the warning here is universal. And that is that don't treat money as if it's in just an unambivalently good. We tend to view money as obviously it's better to have more than less. I think of the um, scene from Fiddler on the Roof, one of my favorite movies. I know it's a Broadway musical. Not all of us can go actually see it as a musical, but I love the movie. And um, there's a scene where Tevye, who's this poor farmer, is complaining about not having money. He has this worker who's this kind of young, idealistic socialist named Perchik. And Perchik says to Tevye, money is the world's curse. And Tevye responds, and may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. It's like, well, that's, yeah, that's about how we view money. Of course, you get a pay raise. Well, that's a good thing. Oh, I can get this job and make 50% more. Of course, it's a good thing. But the Bible's a, a lot more uh, nuanced in how it understands money. And Jesus tells us wealth is not just ambiguously good. 
This is the wisdom in Proverbs 30, verses 8 to 9, where the, the writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. We don't glory in poverty, right? Like we, we want to be provided for. We want God to meet our physical needs. But yet if we make too much, that can be a way for our heart to wander from the Lord. That's the wisdom of the Bible. And so I have some pastoral encouragements. The first one is, I've kind of already been talking about it, but just be sober-minded about increasing income. I mean, it's not a bad thing if, if, you know, you will almost certainly make more when you're 50 than when you're 16. That's just the way life works. It's part of God's provision. You'll have more needs, et cetera, et cetera. But let's just not be, let's just not be like, naive, as if always more money is a good thing. Well, no, with more money comes more responsibility. It comes more danger. Because the ironic thing is, is as we become more financially established, the thing that God cares about most, which is our reliance and trust on him, is tends to erode, tends to. Of course, with God, the impossible is possible. It doesn't have to be. So uh, some pastoral encouragement. First, just be sober-minded about increasing income. Second, pastoral encouragement. is just, and this is more for our younger members who are either watching online or here in person, but set standards of generosity when you're young. When Mark and I were in premarital counseling, I was living in D.C. and was, I, didn't, I didn't have any discretionary spending. Let's just put it that way. I had mastered the art of living on $25 a week. And, uh, and in D.C., that's not, not a whole lot. Um, and uh, our, our, our counselors who were doing our premarital counseling were talking about tithing. And they said, well, do you tithe at the beginning of the month and trust that God will provide, or do you tithe, tithe at the end with what you have left over? And I was like, well, you tithe at the end. That's, that's, res- that's fiscal responsibility. And they're like, no, you tithe at the beginning. And you trust that God will provide what you need. And I didn't, I didn't buy it at first. Like, no, that's a terrible idea. But they convinced us, and that's more or less what Mark would have done. And nine years later, I mean, God's just, he's provided. We're just anecdotal experience, right? Everyone's got their own experience. But God's provided. So start young. Set patterns of generosity while you're young. And then third pastoral encouragement is just remember, our money is not ours. It's a stewardship from the Lord it's a stewardship for us to spend in ways that honor the Lord, in ways that advance his kingdom. So that's just some pastoral encouragement. But Jesus doesn't just ask us to give up everything and trust him in this passage. He also gives us some remarkable promises. And that gives us to our third point, the promises of faith. This is verses 28 to 30. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So, so you have this contrast between you know, the faith of a child and this rich young ruler and the rich young ruler, he's just not able to trust God with what he cares about most, which is his money. He's not willing to give it up. He walks away. And so Peter comes to this question. And it may seem like Peter's saying, well, 
we actually did this. And he's kind of like bragging. And based on what we know about Peter's personality, that would make sense. But I actually don't think that is what he's saying in this, in this story. One, because he's telling the truth. Like Peter, kind of speaking for the disciples, they had given up an amazing amount of things to follow Jesus. So they'd left their homes. And before the days of phones and internet and even the telegraph, like if you did not live in a physical proximity, you just didn't see someone, you were as good as dead. And they'd left their homes. They'd left family and friends. Uh, Peter had given up his business. He'd given up the, the security of a vocation, probably one they would have inherited from his father and from his, he gave it up to follow Jesus. And then you got to think, I mean, Jesus was such a polarizing figure. I mean, we think of how polarized the church has become in the last two years. Like, Jesus was even more polarizing. People killed him because they hated him so much. I mean, in his own hometown, they tried to kill him. And so I imagine that the disciples lost friends because of their decision to follow Jesus. At the end of the day, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. That's how I know this is not arrogance. Because Jesus always treated arrogance with rebuke, but he encourages them. And so I think what Peter is saying is, you know, speaking for the disciples, like, Jesus, we've given up a lot to follow you, and it's been hard at times, really hard. Is it going to make any difference? Here's this guy who has his cake and he's eating it. He's got fabulous wealth, and he's choosing that, and he's going to live a very good life. Is it going to make a difference that we gave up so much to follow you? I think that's the nature of the question. And that makes a lot more sense of how Jesus responds, because Jesus responds with encouragement. And he gives an amazing promise. First, Jesus says, truly. Now, when the Lord of life speaks, everything he says is trustworthy. It is God speaking himself. But here Jesus says, but just so you know, I'm going to give an extra emphasis of certainty. Truly, you can stake it to my reputation as the Lord of life that what I'm about to tell you is true. You can take it to the bank. And this is the essence of the promise. Even if you have to give up what is most important to you, what is most valuable to you, what you hoped and longed for most. Right? He says, whoever gives up, whoever leaves house or wife or brothers or parents or children. He emphasizes the relational cost. It's interesting. Here's a rich young man who's unwilling to give up his possessions. But we all know the most important things in our lives are not our possessions. No one sits on their deathbed and thinks, I wish I had just spent more time with my cars. And you think over what makes life worthwhile living. It's the relationships. You think back over your friends and your family, over love that was lost, over relationships that never reconciled. That's what leads to like long-term regret. And reflecting on good relationships leads to long-term happiness. And so what Jesus is saying is like, even if you have to give up marriage and kids and family members, even if, even if that is what Jesus asks of us, asks of us the most hardest things, still, still, you will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Even if you give up the great, what is most important to you, in this life, not just the one to come, but in this life, you will receive many times far greater and then when you stand before Jesus, you're going to see that nothing you gave up compares to what you receive in his presence. Jesus doesn't explain how this is true. He just says it. We can speculate. 
But again, what Jesus wants from us is our, our trust, our reliance. And even to receive these promises, it's something we just take on trust. Now, how is it possible that Jesus will reward us even in this life? Well, I think part of the explanation to that is the church. The church is the answer to that. For those who give up family members, well, in return you receive a massive family that's eternal of brothers and sisters who you'll worship with in this life and in the life to come. And I tell you what, that's a high calling for the church. To be a place where even if someone came, I mean, you know, there are places in the world, like in the Middle East, where if you become a Christian, your family casts you out. And for them to be able to come to a church and say, you know what, it was hard when I lost my family, but I have received more. That is a high calling for the church that is good for us to reflect on. How can we be that kind of a church where this really is a family, not just a social club or a weekly service, but a place where we know each other and are known and we find belonging. But at the end of the day, again, we trust that Christ is speaking the truth and we may not know until we stand before him how we received more in this life than we gave up. But I will tell you this. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And when we stand before Christ, I guarantee you, based on the word of God, if what he says is trustworthy, which it is, when we stand before Christ, nothing that we gave up will compare to what we've received. In fact, we will probably wish that we'd given up more. Thought, if we had known how great this is going to be, how good the Lord is, I wish I'd given up more. If this promise is true, then my question for, for you is, what is the Spirit of Christ trying to tell you this morning? If you've made sacrifices and it's been hard and you're wondering if it's worth it, I just, I want you to hear the promise of the Lord that it has not been for nothing and you will receive far more in this life and in the one to come. And, it, and what you've given up will not compare with what you receive. Is the Lord calling you to make a sacrifice that you were hesitant to make? I just ask, are you willing to trust Christ with everything? As a child trusts their parent, knowing that he won't take away what we love, like for petty reasons. If he does, it's because he knows what's best for us. Are you willing to trust the Lord? Vine Street, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let me pray for us. Jesus, may we approach, may we approach you with the faith of a child and we find you to be trustworthy no matter what we might have to give up no matter what we may walk through in 2022 no matter what um, joy and goodness or pain and hardship is coming may our trust be grounded in who we know you to be grounded in our father in heaven who is calling the shots, who is orchestrating all things, whose hand is always, always at work. May we trust gladly. May we sacrifice 
with joy. Only you can do that. That is a gift of faith that you must give to us. We ask for this. That we might glorify you with our breath, with all our days. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.